Welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas, you elevator pitch artists, build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes, dreamers, doers, join us in the foxhole, in the arena of life. This is the Grand Plaster Podcast, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the origin stories that made them who they are today. Hey everybody, Graham Plaster with Tom Suter. How's it going, Tom? Going great, Graham. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So let's dive into your background. So where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town northwest of Pittsburgh called Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. It was a steel mill town, and uh, I, I have a Serbian background, and there's a lot of ethnic folks that were in this town and it was during World War II, I think it produced more steel than Germany or, or Japan. So uh, gradually it would it, it had a slow deterioration over time. And then we ended up leaving there in about the seventies, the steel mill closed down shortly thereafter. So uh, big steeler fan. Uh, I think that you, you gotta be tough to be in that area. I think that's been helpful. My dad and grandfather, um, you know, they, they didn't make a lot of money in their lifetimes. And uh, I saw a lot of steel workers and uh, was really into that life. I didn't even know it was that tough of a life, really, growing up there. But then we moved to Northern Virginia. In, in what, what makes the steel mill life difficult? What's the, I mean, I don't understand anything about well, milling steel. Well, it's very dangerous. I mean, when you're when you're in the steel mill, it's people that are going to accept a lot of risk and do dangerous work with molten steel. Other things were there was it wasn't the greatest in the 70s when you go outside and they're sit on your cars and it's hard to breathe. And uh, it's predominantly blue collar work. It wasn't, you know, a lot of people getting their, you know, not a lot of steel workers getting uh, their MBAs and PhDs. So it was very much a working class town very diverse, African-American, a lot of ethnic communities. And it was like, uh, I grew up kind of like right after integration of schools. And then uh, the, the economy was on the way down and it's been on the way down. It's, you know, the town has been taken over by the state. It's, it's very, you know, when you talk about jobs being outsourced, so people had that constant pressure. That's why we had to leave where we are home because there weren't really any jobs there and we had better opportunities outside of there. So what, yeah, how did your father or your mother adapt to the changing economy? Well, my mother had, we had four kids. I'm the oldest of four kids. She had four kids in five years. So by 1977, she had a full brood. My mom and my father met at the University of Maryland. And my grandfather, who's an Air Force uh, retired colonel, was down in Northern Virginia. And she was a school teacher. So, um, you know, it was a little tough for my dad to get a decent job in, in Aliquippa anymore. So he came down here and just a better opportunity, totally different. I mean, when you're a kid, it was just uh, a big transition. You, you mm. thought this place that you grew up in was the greatest place in the world. And the next thing you know, you're down in this foreign land of Northern Virginia, Vienna, Virginia. So and what years were, was that for you? Were, you were in middle school, high school? I, I, I was like 10. Um, okay. I'm not that old, Graham. Give me a break. <laughs> but I was I was about ten, and my grandparents owned a small 
a kind of a, a Christian school. So we all, my mom ended up working for that school. And then I ended up going to that school. And my grandfather was kind of, my grandparents were the administrators of that school. So I got to really spend more time with my grandparents than I previously had on my mom's side. So it was, it was definitely a total change for us. And how did that shape you and your interests at the time? What did you start to, you know, get interested in and involved with? Well, the school is a very good one. I, I, I think we spent more time on academics and, uh, you know, I, I, I learned a lot about working hard. My grandfather, he was a World War II veteran. He worked at the Pentagon for about 17 years. And then he started this, this private school because he thought that he could help the community. And my grandfather lived to about 85. And I think he worked every day, you know, every day of his life. He, you know, he took Sundays off, but he, he worked. I learned a lot about the value of the work ethic because my grandparents, they actually had invested in a little place called Great Falls and they were comfortable, but they all drove Fords. They didn't change their lifestyle. So I think I picked up a lot of my work ethic, um, you know, from my grandfather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, did they, did he, he fit the whole paradigm of the silent generation? I mean, what, what kinds of things did you see in his character that, I don't know, inform you or, or different from how you grew up? Yeah, he was, you know, these World War II vets are, they're funny. They don't tell you too many stories. Uh, it takes a lot to get them out. I think they just kind of were looking forward. But uh, he had a big family, you know, he had five kids and each of those, uh, everybody had a, each of his, uh, you know, sons and, and my mom was the only daughter, each had about four kids. And I think learned about the value of family and hard work. And he was very tough, you know, that's that World War II generation. They're very tough on you. They were tough on me as a grandkid. Um, you know, they, 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 they didn't believe in giving you a lot of money to you know, spend, you got to go work on your own. And, uh, you know, I definitely, I left, definitely learned the value of hard work and, and, you know, doing a great job on everything to do, at least for my grandfather. So what, yeah. So what'd you do after high school then? I went to uh, Virginia Tech, which was a great experience. I had a lot of fun. I did a lot of things besides go to class. I was the sports editor of the college paper. Uh, which doesn't sound like much, but I got to go to Hawaii to cover Virginia Tech. I got to go travel around the country. And that was like my first time really not being in Pennsylvania or Virginia. Like I had never been on a plane. I had never, my father, you know, is a classic meat and potatoes guy. I don't think I had Chinese food until I went to college. So it really broadened my experiences. And uh, I'll tell you what, it did prepare me in business uh, when you have to interview professional athletes. You can't be nervous. You can't stumble. You 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 learn to not be afraid of the moment, you know, uh, or else you don't want to appear foolish. So I got to cover a lot of NBA, NFL, even when I was in college, as well as you know, big time coaches, and it was definitely a good experience. I did, alas, I did not end up going into sports. Um, it was just very competitive, and I had some good friends that knew how to write really really well, and they ended up doing a lot in the sports world. But I I got a lot out of it. And uh, after I got out of college, it was a uh, the it was a little bit of a tough environment on the work. So you couldn't just go get a job. It wasn't like it is today. And uh, I, you know, so I ended up kind of like taking Nobel classes. You know, if you remember that topology for doing networks, and I was like working, uh, 
side jobs and, and is being a waiter. And then I ended up working for a, a physical infrastructure company doing telecommunication work after after college, mm. which I never thought I would get into, but it was kind of, it was it was an interesting field, and that kind of really got me in the tech side. Yeah, I was I was wondering how you got there from having done the sports journalism stuff. Uh, okay, so you're working you're working in a restaurant, you said, where you were waiting tables, and then you were side hustling with some telecom. Well, I I actually what happened was is I I told the person that hired me I said I'm going to be really really good while I'm here, but I I'm going to get a job out of this. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to get a job. So I actually waited on this guy's table, uh-huh. and he was like he had a a a cabling company and I was I was taking some classes Nobel classes so I knew enough to be dangerous so I ended up working for this company and we were doing installation of communication gear locally you know land cabling things like that and and after I was only there about a year and uh the the it was two brothers and then one of them wanted to go his own way and uh he ended up bringing me on as a partner at age 25 for this company called Concert Technologies, and it was just me, me and him, and uh, we we started doing communication work around the world. So now I'm in. Now I'm really in it, you know. So we built that company uh, for about 17 years before I got bought out. But it was a fun. We basically, if you needed something at Tajikistan tomorrow, you would call me on the communication side. So. Um, I built, we built a system to, you know, do deployments. Uh, I worked for AT&T, Verizon, pretty much every carrier. I was on every federal network from FTS 2000 to 2001 to networks. And uh, now we're to EIS. I did all the distance circuits. I did the NMCI. So it was really the, you know, how do, how do you build a company? How do you hire and fire? And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. Graham, you just get so much experience doing so many different things. So it really prepared you. Now, if, you, if you're getting a call from, you know, like the secretary of an agency and they're down somewhere and, uh, you know, I, I could think of all the things that we've had, every single one of them, 9-11, you know, we need people at the Pentagon uh, that night. Uh, you know, we got to go to World Trade. We got to do a laser shot to get communications from 60 Hudson or something. You know, it's like Katrina you know, work around the world that happens during, during, during these events. And it was just, uh, it was a good run. I learned a lot. And uh, by the time 2010 or so hit, I was ready to do something different. You know, you know, it's not good waiting. Hey, when's the next disaster going to be here? So you can break me out of glass in case of emergency, you know? Yeah. Okay. So you 17 years, you're able to exit this company, right? You said, so you got bought. I was. I, I got bought out. We were, we, you know, we kind of like a lot of people that are entrepreneurs. You, you kind of figure it out. And and uh, he ended up, uh, my partner ended up buying me out. And uh, so I, you know, it was kind of like a new challenge. I, first of all, you, when you do that, you're under a non-compete. You can't go and try to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't want to. But um, you know, I that that's where I kind of like uh, wanted to do. I ended up getting in the mobile space and because I had done field force deployments and I was thinking, you know, field force deployment, you know, was people had flip phones and blackberries back then. And 
how do I get them a work package more efficiently? And how can they do a checklist? Maybe they take a picture when they're on site. Maybe not. You know, if it's a secure place, you wouldn't do that. But, you know, how do I go through my checklist and get my survey work done? And that kind of brought me on my next adventure because I was going to start a develop. I started a development company in that area. But it's it's like one of these things. Anytime there's a new technology, there's so many issues. So there's security of the mobile app. There's security in the phone. How do I start using these new iOS and Android phones? Um, you know, how do I connect to the network? Uh, I'm used to having applications and, and working behind my desk. How do I start doing field deployment? You know, most field deployment, even today, to a major degree, you have uh, you have papers and checklists and you fill it out. How, and then you go back and do your paperwork at the end of the day. So I realized how challenging that was and I couldn't do it alone. Um, so then I started working with an association called ACT IAC and, you know, we realized we had to bring this coalition of the willing, bring in the military, bring in civilian agencies and, and, and really start hammering out a lot of these problems. And that's what kind of got me to where I am today with the, with my next adventure. But, uh, so I had a services company in that space. I also spun some technology out of MIT Lincoln Labs. Um, that was very interesting around the mobile security space and compliance space, which is very interesting. And I've exited both those businesses. And then I started what I, where I am today, which is the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, which I had a little bit of a parallel uh, to those efforts. So, um, so, okay, a little bit in parallel. So just untangle it for me. 2010, you exit your first company-ish, right? You have two other businesses that you said you've exited. So you're a serial entrepreneur. But then you stand up yes. this trade association, essentially, or a nonprofit, uh, and that what's the focus of that, and what was that entrepreneurial journey yeah. like doing kind of multiple companies while you're also doing the nonprofit space? Yeah, it, it is it is a little crazy. I, I ended up starting uh, a nonprofit because I, I really wanted a lot of the a lot of the associations are fantastic. I mean, FCA, Act I, Act, a lot of the ones. And they still are fantastic, but I, I wanted to do things faster and with less friction and less bureaucracy. So I ended up starting um, the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center. It was originally about taking technology out of, uh, you know, taking technology out of academic and, and you know, government funded labs, um, mm -hmm. you know, agency labs. But it's really expanded beyond that. It's really taking government, industry, and academia, and working on these hard problems. We've basically got five different pillars, you know, cybersecurity, which is, I know, is near and dear to your heart. We've got data analytics and, and AI. We've got cloud and infrastructure. We've got DevSecOps, and we've got digital transformation. So in those broad pillars, we have multiple, multiple efforts. We, I think we have 25, 26 working groups inside each of those pillars. But uh, no, it's it's basically you're tacking that next uh, next challenge that comes up. They never they keep coming, you know. Um, you know, zero trust right now is is probably one of our bigger working groups, and uh, so it it's been fun. We, you know, but uh, it's it, it, it gradually I decided it pandemic wanted to focus um, a little bit. Uh, you know, ATARC was doing in-person events and then we have pandemic. What are we going to do there? So we, it was been a big challenge to switch to the digital side. 
Well, you say it's been a big challenge, but you and I were talking before, and it sounds like you've not only adapted, you've excelled during the, that challenge. Yeah, it, it's almost like, you know, if you play sports, I think we were really good at dribbling with our right hand, you know, and these in-person events, but we really got to work on other parts of our game. Um, and I, I think we, I, I think one of the benefits of pandemic, there haven't been many, but, you know, we used to do a lot of conference calls. And I'll tell you what, this Zoom environment is, is, is a lot better than a conference call. I'd rather meet somebody in person, but it's, it's, it's really helped us. I think it's helped us in our working groups a lot. There's better engagement from the government. So um, we do a lot of uh, not for attribution, attribution roundtables. We do typical webinars. They've been doing fantastic. Uh, it's really made us think more uh, instead of just being an in-person event. We're reaching a far broader audience. And I think the challenge is, is we're like the federal government. What happens when we go back to physical events, which looks like it's happening very soon? How do we how do we keep the virtual going? What's the right balance between virtual and physical? And it how's this hybrid uh, going to, going to work? Um, so it we we've done well, I think. And uh, but I think there's a lot of challenges a lot of challenges ahead. I'm comfortable that we've got a good plan, and we'll see what happens. But um, you know, with this COVID, you got to keep, you've got to be really fluid. You've got to change things really quickly. You got to change that business model. How, how old is ATART now? How many years have you been running? It's eight years. So we've been doing this now for, for eight years. And uh, we started off like one or two events a year. So it was like really wasn't. But then we started doing collaboration sessions with MITRE, which led to working groups. and. Um, I think the biggest change over the years is people know our brand now and, and the government agencies actually come to us. Yeah. They really, they're coming to us with their problems. So it's gotten actually a lot easier because I don't have to like convince them. Uh, you know, when we did the digital government strategy for mobile, I took a little convincing, you know, I, I didn't even have an association. I was working with another one, but it, it took a little bit of convincing. Now I don't have to convince anybody there. They're coming. The agencies tend to come to us with challenges, and that's where I get my get get our ideas at ATARC. It's really from the agencies themselves. And what's uh, what are some next steps for the organization as far as you know strategically? Yeah. So I, I think that one thing that every organization does, we don't want to be like you know challenging the government has. Uh, we're trying to use technology to make our jobs easier, you know, in introducing RPA, smart sheets. I'm trying to automate a lot of mundane processes. Uh, you know, I've, our staff has gone from four to 15. So I feel like we're fully staffed for the moment. How can we make people more efficient so they're doing more interesting work? Um, the, the biggest thing this year, I, I, I believe, is this idea of doing labs, you know, for the government. We have a zero trust lab. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of part of the working group, but it, it, it's bringing in technology that the government has a chance to, to, to experiment with. So for our zero trust lab, we have 55, 56 companies in the lab. They're all doing demonstrations now. And, uh, but the future of the lab is agencies will bring us use cases. Hey, here's my environment. Here's my use cases. Hey, come back with a DevSecOps solution or an AI solution or, um, 
any uh, any uh, other domain. So like I, I need a multi-cloud solution. How 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 would I do that? And it's very interesting. So we we think that um, industry is going to respond uh, rapidly. And these are this is all rapid. Uh, so we think that we can be almost a proxy to help them do their market research quicker, so they can make decisions quicker, and really implement the technology, you know, commercial technology faster. I think that's really a problem the federal government has. You know, how do I implement this faster? We don't need to create more new technology. Industry is kind of doing a lot of that. Um, it's how do we start using that technology and, you know, not getting technology that's 10, 15 years old, right? That dovetails with my next question, which is what are you, what are you passionate about right now, um, whether for ATARC or, you know, in other projects? Yeah, I, I, I think at ATARC, you know, we're really looking at, you know, how do we compete? You know, if we're talking artificial intelligence, how do we compete against China by 2035? Uh, how, do we, how do we maximize our military dollars, our civilian dollars, so that it, more, money goes to the, more money goes to the mission? And I really believe that. You know, I didn't have the opportunity to be in the military. My son is a uh, second lieutenant in the army and you know he tells me things that I wish were better right how can we make this better so you're not spending a lot of your day as a military soldier on mundane stuff right how do I do more mission work do more field work so I, I have that in mind uh, and, and uh, you know the rest of the military and civilian agencies how can I just make your job a little bit easier so I can focus on the real on the real work. So that's that's kind of like my focus at work. Mm -hmm. And what is something that you like to share or recommend to your friends and family or your colleagues or members of HR? Yeah, well, I, I'm a big a big reader. I, I think during pandemic for a while there, I wasn't reading so much. I was more reading trade press and I was so immersed in uh, getting us going at ATAR during pandemic and dealing with all that but i love fiction i love stephen king but i've been reading a lot of cool interesting books uh lately you know kind of military i'm a little bit like you i like to read military books i'm re reading right now uh, one book i read recently is is must reading is it's a hundred year marathon by michael pillsbury i i met um i met general pillsbury when he wrote the book it really got me thinking about you know what we need to do here at ATARC, you know, think for the long haul, not think about next week, next month, and uh, why we're doing this. You know, we're competing globally uh, with with other countries. We got to think of it as a competition, and we need to be ready, or you know, our way of life could be compromised. I, I don't want to exaggerate that. And I think we've seen in the events here in recent times that your life can change fast, and your way of life can change. Another cool book, I don't know if you read it, but it's 2034, a novel, The Next World War um, by uh, Admiral James uh, Stavitis, I think is how you pronounce his name. Really interesting. I don't know if I agree with everything, but I liked it. It was an enjoyable, good read. And I just am starting a, a book by El, Elbridge Colby called The Strategy of Denial. It's another geopolitical thing. And uh, I do have to plug a friend of mine, an ex-sports writer, who's been writing the American Sports Writer series. So uh, Chris Colston, um, he, he actually stayed in sports and worked for the USA Today. So I kind of like live vicariously through him. And uh, now I'm living through him is through his uh, novel series, which is pretty good. 
That's awesome. So if people are listening to this and they want to get involved with ATARC or reach out and follow you or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, just to reach out to me personally. Um, ATARC's a big place. I, I want to get anybody situated the best way possible. And uh, if I know this podcast is a friend of Graham's, if they're a friend of Graham's, they're a friend of mine. So I am uh, T is and Tom Suter at ATARC.org. Just send me something personally and I will handle it. We're never too big for me not to handle things like this. Uh, that's awesome. And uh, just so listeners know, I'm involved with ATARC uh, as one of the um, influencers uh, in residence and also uh, in a couple of the committees. And uh, so I look forward to seeing you there if you want to join us. And thanks, Tom, so much for your time today. Thank you, Graham, and thank you for all the work that you do. I know I've been to a lot of your events, and uh, I love how unique experience in boutique you make everything. It's I, I've learned a lot from you. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you to the dogs for the cameo appearance. <laughs> for those who heard the dogs in the background. All right, have a good one. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster Podcast. Get show notes and more at grahamplaster.com.